Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. So we are finishing up our Gospel Pathway series this morning. We have been in this for uh, the last, I guess, 10 weeks plus, uh, took a week off last week, all right? So um, finishing Gospel Pathway, hopefully it's been uh, impactful for your walk with Jesus as much as it's been impactful for my own personal walk with Jesus. So um, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about joy being the end of this pathway. Um, so next week, we actually start the minor prophet of Haggai, all right? So I know a lot of you have been reading Haggai a lot lately. So um, <laughs> some of you are like, I didn't even know that book was in the Bible. All right, so we're going to spend four weeks in Haggai starting next week. But uh, joy being the end of this pathway, there's, there's where we get to the smiley face, all right? But we've been walking through this journey in this pathway where we have spent four weeks defining what is the gospel. And then we've talked about how do we live it out. When we've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do we walk in this newness of life that the gospel brings? And so week one, God is the prize. Then sin is the problem. Jesus is the answer. Faith is the response. And then we spent three weeks talking about holiness being the journey that we're on. And then we spent the last three weeks talking about love being the reputation of those that have been changed by the gospel. So today we talk about joy being the end. Now, if you've been with us for a while, or even if you haven't been with us, you go, yeah, I, maybe you get the whole idea of the gospel. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great journey. But joy, the end may be something, but I'm not experiencing joy right now. Actually, being on this pathway feels really difficult to you, maybe. Where you go, yes, I think God is the prize. I believe God is the prize. But this world is pushing so many other things for you to prize and treasure in your life. And it just gets difficult to keep saying, yes, God is the prize. God is the prize. God is the prize. And then we've said that sin is the ultimate problem in this world. But it gets confusing when the world keeps saying, no, but this is the problem. Or this political perspective is the problem. Or this over here is the problem. Or a lack of knowledge is the problem. Or we don't, we don't have this and that's the problem. It just gets confusing. And then when you start talking about Jesus being the answer, then you feel really lonely in this pathway. Because Jesus said following him is the narrow path. That's the narrow way, the world's way, wide open. Yeah, everybody understands that. Everybody gets that. But when you say that Jesus is the only way, that he's the answer, the world starts going, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no way. Who do you think you are to say that? And this pathway that's supposed to end with joy is now difficult and confusing and lonely in this world. And then you add in like, spiritual rhythms you're like that's kind of hard in this world that we live in and then talking about loving people that's really hard right <laughs> we even talked about loving people in the church sometimes that's the hardest place right but this life and this pathway that we're all on how can you walk this gospel pathway walk in newness of life and not miserably just trudge through it Based on whatever's going on in your life, how can you actually enjoy this life that God's given you here on this earth? 
That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's jump in to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to march pretty quickly through verses 1 through 6, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in 7 through 14, all right? So Philippians 3, starting with verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So this is the Apostle Paul he's writing. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul was once totally against Christianity. And God had transformed his life in a radical way. And he had gone from persecuting the church to now planting churches. One of the greatest church planters to ever exist in this world. This is who's writing this book. And he goes, Philippian church, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I want you to rejoice. This is a word that's already, this is the sixth time this word has shown up in the book. Normally we march through book, books and you would know that, but we're jumping in chapter three here for this day. And so the sixth time he's talked about joy or rejoicing. This idea that our joy should overflow. It may overflow into praise. It may overflow into singing. It may overflow into just deep satisfaction in this world. But this whole theme, maybe if you are familiar with the Bible, maybe you know that the book of Philippians, actually the whole theme of the book is joy. It just comes up over and over and over. Now here's the ironic thing about this book. Paul is writing it from prison. He's writing this letter as a prisoner because of his faith in Jesus. And he's going, hey, Philippian church, you guys rejoice from prison. That's what he's saying. That's a unique perspective. Like you're in a really tough spot in life. And he's going, rejoice in the Lord. And he actually says, it's no trouble for me to write that to you. Like, it's not a hard thing for me to write that. Because he has a different perspective in this life than most people are going to have. You go, okay, he's in prison, he's getting it. But it, the Philippian church was actually not a wealthy church. It was actually a afflicted church with a lot of suffering we find that from second corinthians chapter eight we're not going to read it but it talks about these churches that were in the region of macedonia and philip the uh, philippi was in that region that other churches had to come alongside and help because they were not in a good spot and they were suffering so here's a guy in prison writing to an afflicted church and he's saying rejoice in the lord rejoice in the lord not in the things that the lord provides Rejoice in the Lord, not in the pleasures that he provides, not in the significance that you may find, not in the justice that he may give, not in just belonging to him or just the comforts that you may have from following him, but rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in the things that only you can come up with. Rejoice in the one who gives these really good gifts. So then it's going to take a pretty hard left turn here from rejoicing in the Lord, but we've got to keep that in mind. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, and then verse 2, look out for the dogs. All the cat people said amen, right? All the non-cat people looked at you because you're a weird cat person, all right? Um, so look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You're like, what is he talking about? I get the rejoicing in the Lord, but now watch out for dogs. Beware of dogs. So the whole idea here is there's a threat to rejoicing. There's a group of people that are threatening their joy. And it's a group of people that had come into the Philippian church, and they'd actually come into the Galatian church and other places, and they were called the Judaizers. They were 
Jewish-born people, and they had become Christians. So they would say, yes, you are saved by grace alone, but you actually need to add a few Jewish things into that as well. In a most basic form, you need to be a Christian, but you actually need to practice circumcision as well. So it's not just saved by grace alone, but grace alone plus some other works. And they really valued this outward activity, outward expression, maybe outward morality. And he's going, watch out for those religious people. Some of us don't think of the religious people just as the one that's a threat to our joy. Some of you are like, yeah, I get it. Um, But he's saying, watch out for those people. It's not just religious people. It's people who would say, put so much hope and their joy is so tightly tied to their religious expression. And belonging to this like religious heritage. And he's going, watch out. Watch out for those people. He's saying, yes, they prize the grace of God, but they also want you to do other things, and they're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh, literally, physically. That's a threat to your rejoicing. It would be the people on this gospel pathway who focus, who miss the first four weeks of God being the prize and Jesus being the answer and sin being the problem and faith being the response. And they just focus solely on holiness, the journey, and love being the reputation. And that's where they get all everything from. That's what we're going to be about. We're going to be holy people. We're going to be loving people. But you miss why in the process. And he goes, watch out. That's a threat to your rejoicing in the Lord. In verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision. Not those people, not them, but we are. And, and the we here is talking about Jewish Christians and Gentiles. We are the circumcision. We're the ones set apart. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what is this evidence that you're set apart is that you worship by the Spirit of God, you glory in Christ Jesus, and you have no confidence in the flesh. And the flesh here, he's using it physically, talking about circumcision, right? But it's beyond that. For all of us in the room, he's saying, you put a lot of confidence in the way that you live before Christ or the way that you live outside of Christ. You're not following the Spirit. You're just following your own fleshly desires, And the life that you live in this earth, he's saying, Philippian church, like, we're the circumcision. That's not how we operate. We don't put confidence in those things. We don't put confidence in the way that we were before Christ. We don't put confidence in the way that we are outside of Christ. So he's contrasting the Judaizers here, which leads us to verses 4 through 6. And Paul is about to do something here that's going to seem really, really arrogant. Just hang on. Let's work through the arrogant part here, verses 4 through 6, because it's not, um, so that we can get to verse 7. He goes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You think you Judaizers have reason to trust your religious background? Let me tell you who can actually have confidence in that. He goes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. All right now you see the arrogant part, right? What? What do you mean? Like, you have more. He gets it. Paul was a Jew from birth. Because we're about to find that. Here we go. It says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So he was set apart from the beginning of his life. 
He was of the people of Israel. God's chosen nation. That's where Paul came from. Of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. One of the most favored tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel was Benjamin. The city of Jerusalem, the holy city, was found in the land that Benjamin owned. Israel's first king, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. It was a big deal to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul is saying, I was circumcised from the beginning. I was a Jew. I'm of this chosen people, Israel. I'm from this special tribe. And he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, you want to look at a Hebrew, a Jewish person, this me. And then he flips from just like a family heritage, and he flips to his own righteousness. And he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were experts in the law. The Jewish laws, so many of them. He knew them. He was so knowledgeable of that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he had this passion and dedication as a persecutor of the church. He said, I believe that Judaism, that's the right way. We are the chosen people of God, and I'm going to cut out anybody that's following this Messiah. In fact, in other parts of Scripture, we found out that this guy was breathing murderous threats against the church. This is the guy that's writing this now. Something has transformed and changed in Paul's life where he used to be passionately dedicated to persecuting the church. And then finally he says, as to righteousness under the law, so under the Jewish law, blameless. Not a perfect guy, but when it came to following just the Jewish laws and customs, Paul made a hundred on that exam. So here's a guy, he's going, look, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, Philippian church. But in your rejoicing, watch out because there's people that are going to come steal your joy. And those are the people who put a lot of confidence in who they were before Jesus and who they are outside of Jesus. And he goes, but if that's what we're going to be about, I could put more confidence in you than, than you could. I can have a lot of confidence in that. Which brings us to verse 7. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, Paul said, all those things that make me seem really good, my heritage and my righteousness on my own, I consider them all a loss. All the things that are going to help me, that I think are going to help me gain an advantage and access to God, I'm going to consider all those a loss. They don't even matter. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. He's going, my elite heritage, it's a loss. My exceptional morality, it's a loss. What is it for you in this room? What is it for you that you think, man, this is going to help gain an advantage in God's corner for me? Maybe it's your religious upbringing. And you're holding on really tightly to the fact that your parents were Christians or your grandparents were Christians. Paul would say, count it as a loss. Count it as a loss. Now, it doesn't mean that your Christian parents and grandparents weren't wonderful and maybe that's how God used to bring you to Christ. But if that's just what you're clinging to, to make you right with God, you're missing it. And you've got to count those things a loss. 
maybe in here you think, man, I'll get an advantage with God if I have a certain political leaning. Oh, I'm a citizen of America. That means that I have better access to God. No, that's not true. That's false. Democrat, Republican, American, Paul would say, consider it a loss. Consider it a loss. But maybe you thought, man, my advantage is that I've, I've been a good person. I've done good things. I volunteer with my time. I pray before bed. I show up at Veritas on a Sunday. Paul goes, consider it a loss. Now, not just consider that they're terrible things. Those are not bad things. But what does he say? Consider it a loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. When compared to Christ, all, that thing, all those things are a loss. When our purpose in this life is wrapped up in treasuring Christ, we go, those things they really don't matter. That's not what's going to gain an advantage before God. When I stand before Him one day, none of those things will gain an advantage. I consider them a loss. But He actually doesn't just stop with the things that are going to gain Him an advantage. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's going... I'm not just going to consider everything that would gain me an advantage before God as a loss. I'm actually going to consider anything this world has to offer as a loss. When I compare it to knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I'm going to consider it all a loss. I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things. Why? For His sake. For Christ's sake, I'm willing to say, I'll lose it all. Everything is a loss. And I'm actually going to consider them rubbish. Greek word is literally dung. You fill in what you want to say there, all right? He's saying it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. It is street filth. Everything that this world would have to offer you doesn't matter when it comes to you being in right relationship with God. The Hebrews got this, which in the book of Hebrews, we studied through this for a long time this past year, and in Hebrews you have a bunch of Jewish Christians again. And they were trying to go back to their old Jewish ways, much like this. They were trying to go back to it, and this is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 says. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There was something better for you, so all the stuff that you had on this earth, people started plundering it. They started taking it. They started destroying it. And what did you do? You joyfully accepted it. Some of you are like, that's crazy. And it's crazy if you don't have a better possession and an abiding one. You don't know that God is the prize. You don't know that something is better, that Jesus is the answer. 
because we would cling too tightly to our stuff. But here, Paul is saying, no, I'm considering it all a loss. And I'm willing to lose all that so that, what? So that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. I'm willing to lose everything, consider it all a loss, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And what do we gain by being found in Christ? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What do you gain in Christ and being found in Christ? You gain His righteousness. That's good news. Really good news. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, He, God, made made Him Jesus. So for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin on the cross. So that we could gain His righteousness. When you gain the righteousness of Christ, you have full direct access to God Almighty, the prize forever. So when anything this world, you go, yes, I'll consider it all a loss because I have the righteousness of Christ now. Like that doesn't matter. What I thought was going to gain me an advantage to God, it can't do anything. But I do have the righteousness of Christ and it will gain me an advantage to God. It actually gains me a full relationship with God. It's wonderful news. And then when you're tempted to pursue the things of this world, you go, that doesn't matter. I've got the righteousness of Christ. He gains this relationship and it's so much more than just knowing something. It's so much more than his passion and dedication. It's so much more than all of it, his religious morality. Guys, we can't tie our joy and our rejoicing to our own righteousness. It will let us down. We can't tie our joy to our own family heritage. It will let us down. Something better exists. And that something better is what's going to stir up joy and allow us to rejoice in this life. But one of the first things that will kill your joy or take your joy in this life is the pleasures of this world. For many people that call themselves Christians, they claim, yes, I love Jesus, but I'm going to find all my satisfaction in the world. They ride the fence of following God or following the world. One foot in following God, one foot on the other side of the fence following this world. And for many of you that have walked that path and ridden that fence, you know that it is such a disappointing path. My question for you this morning is, is God really the prize in your life? Or do you really care about the stuff that this world may bring you more than God himself? It's kind of like when you were a kid during the summertime, and somebody starts blowing bubbles in the backyard, right? And as a kid, it makes what kid doesn't get happy when they see a bunch of bubbles flowing everywhere, right? Like even for adults, you like smile when you see the bubbles going, right? And then those kids, they're so happy 
such smiles on their faces and they run and they go chase the bubbles and they reach out their hand like, I'm going to get it and I'm so happy. And you grab it and it bursts. And all it leaves you with is a sticky mess on your hand, right? So many of us in this life have said, yes, I love God, but I'm going to chase after the hollow bubbles of this world that are temporary, that only leave the sticky mess of consequences. And you go, yes, I want to chase after the Lord, but I really want to chase after something that's so temporary and will not lead to lasting joy and satisfaction. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Way to Glory, many of you have heard this quote, but he says this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. You want to rejoice in this life? You want to enjoy this life that God has for you? Quit chasing after hollow bubbles. Quit chasing after and making mud pies in the slums because God has something infinitely, eternally greater, more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. So he goes, Paul's saying, I'm willing to lose it all to gain Christ, his righteousness, and be found in him. And then verse 10, he says, that I may know him So the goal is like, I'll gain his righteousness, but I want to know him. I want this relationship with him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Guys, he goes, I want to know Christ and I want to experience and know the power of the resurrection. The power of a resurrection. This is something that Paul already has, but he hasn't fully experienced it and realized it on this side of heaven yet. This power of the resurrection. This power that raised Christ from the dead after he was crucified and literally died. He's raised from the dead. And he's, this is the first resurrection that now as believers, we all get to experience this kind of resurrection one day. This is the key to living in a broken world. The key to the way that Paul would say, man, I want to... I wanna, share in the sufferings of Christ? Like, that doesn't seem like a rejoicing life, does it? Yeah, let me share in the sufferings of Christ where he was brutally murdered. Let me share in that. Nobody says, hey, you want to find joy today? Share in Christ's crucifixion. But that's what Paul's saying. How can he say that? Because he knows there's something better. And that better is the power of the resurrection that can only be experienced through Christ. So how can someone rejoice while suffering in this life? Suffering the loss of everything. This is like joy killer number two. Number one would be the pleasures of this world. Number two would be your circumstances in this world. That will take your joy quicker than just about anything. If that's all you focus on. Maybe this morning you're fighting addiction. Maybe you're in a really tight financial season. Maybe you've been deeply wounded by somebody that is really close to you. You go, how am I supposed to rejoice and enjoy life when those things are happening? 
Are we supposed to just avoid sadness and pretend to be happy? Is that what I'm talking about this morning? No. Jesus wept. Sadness is a God-given emotion. It's not wrong to be sad about the circumstances of this world. But in the midst of your sadness, you've got to realize that something better exists. Something better is coming one day. And when I talk about joy, I think Paul said it at the beginning of this book better than just about anybody. Philippians 1.21. He says, For to me, to live is Christ. This life is about Christ. And to die is gain. Like, okay, if, I'm gonna, if you're going to keep me here on this earth, God, like, I'm going to make it all about you. But to die, man, that would be far better. Can I get an amen? That we don't have to live in this broken world forever? Like, there's something that we're to gain? That's good news. That brings joy, right? Now, some of you are going, I still don't get it. Like, in suffering and hardship, like, what do you mean by joy? Maybe that would have been helpful if I would have defined that before 20 minutes into the, or 30, oh, 30 minutes into the sermon. All right. Um, on one side, joy means happiness, smiling, dancing, leaping with joy. Man, that's, that's a wonderful part of life. And if you're just trudging through this life miserably and never experiencing that, like, you're not experiencing the joy of Christ. Now, there's a different, there's a second part of joy. It's this pure, deep satisfaction of your soul. It isn't always just happy-go-lucky. It's going, in the midst of really, really hard circumstances, I'm fully, deeply satisfied. That's the kind of joy I'm talking about. Where you find pure and deep satisfaction even though you have a wayward child making terrible choices. Where you have pure, deep satisfaction of your soul. You're not happy and dancing over the prognosis that you just received or a diagnosis that your family member just received. You're not happy about that. You're weeping over that. But there's a pure, deep satisfaction to your soul that something better is coming. That's the kind of joy. Because when we have that kind of joy, the only way we can have it is when we're comparing it to all of eternity, right? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 13 through 18. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what's been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's the power of the resurrection that he wants, right? For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now get this. So we do not lose heart. In this earth, in this world, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The thing that will kill your joy is just zooming in on just your circumstances. And what Paul's doing here, he's just weighing these things out. He's going... Your circumstance compared to the full weight of glory 
does that every single time. The full weight of eternal life and the glory of God compared to your circumstance in this life, there's no comparison. He goes, it's a light momentary affliction. Now, I know when you're in the middle of it, some of you right now, it doesn't feel light. It doesn't feel momentary. It feels like it's going to last forever. But we got to keep perspective here, guys. It will not last forever. The eternal weight of glory makes this a light momentary affliction. That's the way that you consider the loss of all things and enjoy this life that God has for us. Verse 11 says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's simply going, God, whatever suffering is necessary for me to experience this life, this resurrection life, I'll take it. Whatever you want to give me, whatever is necessary, whatever death and suffering that I experience, please just help me to remember that the resurrection is coming. Then verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. You see, there's this time in life, I'm going to give you three big theological words, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but they're really important. Some of you are going to check out right here, but don't, alright? They're a big deal. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. If you understand these, it's a huge It's a key to your joy that when you profess faith in Christ because of what Christ has done and you get his righteousness, you are declared right before God and you are justified before God. You are declared right. So your position before God is a right position. However, your position doesn't match your condition on this earth. So then that becomes the sanctification part where you're consistently growing to become more and more like Jesus. But the part that we often skip that we miss is this glorification piece. That right now, our position before God doesn't match our condition. But one day, it absolutely will. Where our position before God completely matches our condition because we're in eternity with God forever. That's joyful and hopeful, guys. We're not just stuck in a broken world forever. There is hope for eternity because of what Christ has done, because of his death and his resurrection. So Paul says, I'm going to keep pressing on to that. I'm going to keep persevering. He's not trying to earn salvation. We already see that it's not his own righteousness that gains him salvation. So he's going to keep pressing on to this. And then verse 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes, one thing in this life. Remember, this life is about Christ. I'm going to pursue Christ in this life. I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going to keep leaning into the tape as I'm running this race. And it's this pure illustration to simply say, I'm going to keep persevering. I'm encouraged to keep going after Jesus, to keep hoping in what's to come. I'm going to run swiftly after that, and I'm going to forget what lies behind. 
I'm not going to look back to my own righteousness. I'm not going to look back to my own circumstances. I'm not going to look back to the pleasures of this world, but I'm going to keep pressing on to the hope that is to come in Jesus. I'm going to strain forward. In this gospel pathway, we're going to keep journeying forward, keep pressing on. Why? Because he's pressing on toward the goal for the prize. And who was the prize week one of this gospel pathway? God. God is the prize. Everything's about God. And I'm pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Guys, our rejoicing and our joy is fed and is sustained in this life when we pursue eternity with God in Christ. Maybe a little easier. Eternal hope fuels earthly joy. Eternal hope fuels earthly joy. You having a heavenly perspective and zooming out from your own circumstances and your own temptations, it will bring more earthly satisfaction. We have to get out from our own righteousness. We have to get out from our own pleasures. We have to get out from our own circumstances because God is the prize. And here's the beauty. Because of the righteousness of Christ, we will be with God forever. Revelation 21, and this is where we're going to end. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Please read the whole chapter. We don't have time to do it this morning. But Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen? Guys, that's what fuels our earthly joy. That kind of hope. So church, when you're tempted to go after the pleasures of this world, read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Save it on your phone. Oh, say, oh man, something far better is out there. Something far better than this hollow bubble. When you're tempted to zoom in just on your circumstances, and those circumstances may be horrific, don't just stay so focused on those, but zoom out and go, let me read Revelation 21, 1 through 4 right now. He's going to wipe away every tear. Death is going to be no more, and I'm going to get to be with God forever. That's good news. That's what allows us to experience this joy in life. Church, we've got to be a people that talk way more about the hope that we have than our own righteousness. We've got to talk way more about the hope we have than our own heritage. We've got to talk way more about the hope we have than our own circumstances. Let's be a people who live joyfully Because we have an eternal hope. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that death will be no more. That there will be no pain. And God, that we don't have to walk through this life any longer without being in your presence. But God, we will be with you forever and you will dwell with us. Thank you, God.
God, help us to be a hope-filled people that in turn become a joyful people. God, we don't want to miserably just trudge through this life to set our eyes on the things above, set our attention on you and on what you have for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.